take that Bible, look over to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, I was thinking that we might be able to finish today, but I'm not so sure. Um, That's so hard for me. I don't want to miss anything with you. I thought if I, I probably won't finish. Follow with me as I read from 518 through 21. He says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, for he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Burke Parsons, in his book, Assured by God, tells of a very interesting man. His name was John Duncan, and he was regarded as one of the most holy men that Scotland had produced in the 19th century. His vast learning in the ancient languages um, earned him the nickname Rabbi. But it was actually his fervent piety that earned him the affection of the young men that he helped prepare for the ministry. In fact, one former student remembered when we looked at the rabbi, we all felt and would say, quote, there is the best evidence of Christianity and especially the best evidence that there is such a thing as living godliness. There is a man who walks closely with God, who actually knows what it is to enjoy the light of, the count, of his countenance. And so he was a godly man, and you read through parts of his bi- biography, and you see that. But despite that, Duncan, John Duncan, is also remembered for the lifelong struggle that he had to gain assurance of salvation. It is a struggle that for him absorbed considerable portion of his spiritual energy and deprived him actually of much joy. And his experience prompts us to ask, what is the right foundation for assurance of salvation? And we would answer that certainly here that it must be grounded in biblical truth and not our own reasoning. The great preacher of years ago, Barnhouse, tells the story of a group of soldiers who were captured during a long war and were held for years in a prisoner of war compound. And Red Cross packages would come and there occasionally within this package was Monopoly games that helped the soldiers pass the time. And soldiers being soldiers, they used the Monopoly money for all kinds of transactions, but especially for gambling. And many a night was passed playing poker using the yellow, green, blue, and red pieces of money. And as always happens, one of the soldiers excelled in this and succeeded in drawing most of the money into his own pockets. He became the prisoner of war camp's captain of industry, amassing a small fortune in his monopoly currency. But finally, the long-awaited day came when the war ended and the prisoners were sent home, came back home. The wealthy soldier took the first opportunity to visit a bank and open his account in the States. Proudly, he dipped into his bag that he had carried from far away 
and scooped yellow $100 bills and golden $500 bills onto the counter. And of course, the bank teller refused to accept any of the Monopoly money. And the point is, is that whatever comfort we derive from the various sources that assure us of salvation, what matters most is that our assurance has the currency with God. How crushing it was for the soldier to learn that he was in fact penniless. But how much more crushing it will be for the falsely assured sinner who spends his or her days in spiritual comforts that in the end leads not to heaven, but actually leads to hell. And so we want to be assured, do we not, with biblical truth that comes from the Word of God. Now, John wrote this epistle that we would be certain about the truth of God, about the truth of Christ, and about the truth of salvation. And I've said the last couple of weeks that 39 different times in this epistle, he uses the word we know. But in fact, in the last just paragraph recorded here from 513 down through 21, it is recorded seven times that we know in this paragraph. In fact, look down at the section we just read in verse 18. He opens up and he says, we know that everyone, look at verse 19, we know that we are from God. Verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come. And so he writes that we would be certain. And so my desire this morning is to remind you of what is true. Certainly, as Charles mentioned today, you could be in one of those secular classes at university, you'll be reminded of what's false likely every day. But as we come here, I want to remind you of what is true. And what John does is he gives five certainties that are engineered to build up our faith and to give assurance to our souls. That's why he gives them. He wants to encourage us. He wants to build us up in the faith and give us assurance. So come with me as we close this wonderful epistle, I think both this week and then the week after Mother's Day as we study the final three certainties of our faith. You remember, we studied the first certainty was the, our assurance of eternal life. There it is up on the screen. Verse 13, we said that he wrote the whole book for that purpose. Verse 13, when he said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And we said there that that segue seems to be that when you have that assurance, then it leads to that second certainty there mentioned is our approach to God in prayer. And we discussed that last week. When you know that you have that assurance of eternal life, you have that second assurity or the certainty that you can approach God with confidence that John says. But it brings us now to our text this morning. The third certainty is our advantage over sin and Satan. Our advantage over sin and Satan. Look at the text again in verse 18. It says there that we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Stop there for a second. Everyone who is born of God does not keep on sinning. 
The concept that John is after is simply this, that the one who is born again, or the one who is transformed by God, cannot and will not live in a pattern of sin. Now, John has said this before. I know that, and you know that. But I'm being a faithful expositor here, and I figured if John wanted to reiterate it, then I need to reiterate it with you this morning. But the one who is born of God or transformed of God cannot continue to live in a pattern of sin. And what John does in that principle there on our advantage over sin and Satan is he cites two advantages that the believer has in battling sin and Satan in this world. We live in a tough world, don't we? We live in a a pagan world. We live in a fallen world. We've looked at that. We're not to love the world, nor the things of the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. We live in that world. Now, he didn't ask Jesus when he prayed to take us out of the world, but that we'd be kept in that world, you know, in the world, pure and holy. And so John seems here on this third certainty to give us our advantage. Just as we have assurance, if you will, of eternal life, and just as we have that certainty of approaching God with confidence, John the writer this morning, by the word of God, wants you to know that you have an advantage because of your walk with Christ earlier in the chapter, in chapter 5, over sin and Satan. The first advantage is this, is that the believer is born of God. The believer is born of God. Look at it again in 18. It says, we know that everyone who has been born of God. Now, we've seen that before. Would you just glance back just for a moment? Look, look at chapter 2. This is not the first time that he's mentioned being born of God. He already said there, do you remember in 2.29, if you know that he is righteous, speaking of Jesus, you may be sure in 2.29 that everyone who practices righteousness has been what? Born of him. The bottom line here is you have an advantage over sin. And here's why. You've been born of God. You've been born again. In fact, it's so clear there that if you practice righteousness, 229, it displays, it proves it's the fruit of being born again. If you will look over at chapter 3, verse 9, he says it again there, that no one, 3-9, born of God, makes a practice of sinning. Well, why is that, John, here? For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning. Why, John? Because he has been born of God. The new birth issues in a new walk. The new birth issues in right conduct. I mean, isn't that what the Lord did in your life? It's what he did in my life. He transforms you. He saves you. He redeems you. He causes you to be born again. That's just what happens. I'm thinking about one man that I know. Uh, He's actually related to somebody in here. Um, 
believe it was their grandpa, and he was sitting on his floor, and I think he was in his early 30s, and he was watching Billy Graham. And that night, in the sovereignty of God, God used that preach message to save this man. And that man, once he gave his life to Christ, was never the same. And you know that he was never the same because if you listen to his wife, she would say from that moment, our entire life changed. Our family changed. Our habits changed. And all the, what happened? He was born again. He was transformed. And when you become transformed by the Spirit of God, you can't continue to practice sin. Look over at chapter 4, verse 7. There, he gives another fruit of that. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves, got to love one another. If you do, whoever loves has been what? Born of God. These are all just conduct and then a change of life that comes out of that principle. Look over at chapter 5 in verse 1, where everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And of course, in 5.4, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. I mean, the principle is this. As a result, we have been delivered from the stranglehold of sin that once held us captive. You and I are no longer slaves of sin, Romans chapter 6. We're no longer rebellious to the things of God. We're no longer walking, as Paul said, according to the course of this world, Ephesians 2. Now, you'll note there, look back at the text again that we're looking at in 5.18. He just simply says it again. Everyone who has been born of God... You see that phrase, does not keep on sinning. And it's in the present tense, and I want you to understand. It doesn't say that he never sins, but the phrase says that he never keeps on sinning. Present tense describing a lifestyle of sin. This is not occasional sin, but the one who is born of God does not persist in an ongoing, habitual, persistent consistent sin. You say, well, that's for super Christians. Well, no, that's not what the Bible says. Look at verse 18. We know that, what does he use, that word? Everyone. There are no exceptions here. Everyone who's been born of God, it says in verse 18, does not keep on sinning. Now, it's not, and you certainly know this, it's not that the believer cannot sin, But the believer here, everyone, will not fall into a lifestyle of ongoing, persistent sin. You say, well, why so? Well, because of the new birth. In other words, I think John's just trying to encourage you as you think of your future, as you think of your life living in this world, as you think of what it means to be in Christ, you have the advantage. The advantage is yours over sin. If you've been transformed by the Spirit of God and He's alive in your heart and in your life, you will not keep on sinning because it says in John, look over at 5 4, that the one who believes, it says in 5 4, for everyone who's been born of God, it says there, overcomes the world. 
So you're not going to keep on sinning. John has said this before. Look over at 1 John chapter 2 and verse 4. Did he not say it there? Whoever says that I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So here's the positive principle. You're not going to keep on sinning, but here you're, you're the one who says I know him does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. You're also not, you're going to want to walk with him, But for those who do not keep his commandments, they are a liar. We've already looked at 2.29, that the one who practices righteousness has been born of him. Look over at chapter 3 and verse 5. Here's the reason that Jesus came, that he appeared to take away sins. And look at 3.6. You know that, or 3.6, no one who abides in him keeps on what? Sinning. I mean, this is just what the scripture says. You can't claim Christ and walk in a lifestyle of sin. You can't claim Christ and continue to look like the world. You can't claim Christ and continue to have a lifestyle of the world. You can't claim Christ and walk out on your spouse. You can't claim Christ and be caught up in relationships with other people as an ongoing practice. You say, why? Because you've been born of God. Now, not again to say that it doesn't mean you're not going to sin, but be very careful that we end up with something other than what the Scripture says. The Scripture is so clear. Look at verse 6 again, 3-6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And remember, he's battling the Gnostics there who basically said, spirit is good, Flesh is evil, spirit is good, but I can do what I want with my body. Well, no, no, you can't. You've been born again, and because you've been born again, he's transformed you. You don't want to live the way that you once lived. You can't keep on sinning. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we don't sin. Look back to 1 John 1.8, just trying to be balanced here. If we say in 1.8 that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is what? Not in us. He tells us in 1.9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. He tells us, look in chapter 2, verse 1, I'm writing these things to you, he says, my little children, in 2.1, that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. And so here you get the idea that what comes out of this language in 1 John 5.18 is not a, a sin. We all sin or we're deceiving ourselves. Again, you have it this that does not keep on sinning, is not in the habit of sinning. You say, well, Scott, I, I know people like that. Well, then whatever you do, don't give them assurance. In fact, what you ought to do is tell them to examine themselves to see whether they be in the faith. Don't go back and just affirm their word because talk is what? Cheap. And did not John continue to say Throughout the book, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we what? We lie. And so here, it doesn't matter what is said. It matters how one lives. And all John's saying is if you're born of God, you're not going to practice sin as an ongoing pattern of life. So number one here, at least under that, that first advantage, would be the fact that 
that we, the believer, has been born of God. And so here we get assurance. You say, well, Scott, and I don't want to miss the point here. You say, what's the assurance? Listen, here's the assurance. I want to be true to the text. You have the advantage over sin. That's the point. And if it ever rises up in your heart, can I keep this faith? Can I obey the Scripture? Can I obey the commandments of God? Listen, you have a certainty in the assurance of your salvation. You have a certainty in your approach to God with confidence. And thirdly, you have an advantage, if you will, over sin, that sin no longer owns you, okay? That's the point. You say, but Scott, I feel mastered by it. No, no, if you're a believer, you do not have to sin. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer in bondage to sin. Why? Because you've been born again, and he's really trying to encourage you. He's giving you hope. He's giving you confidence that if ever the day came in your heart that you think, I can't live this thing called the Christian life. I don't know if I can obey God. I don't know if I can live holy. I don't know if I can go to university and sustain my faith. John would say, oh, yes, you can. If you're born of God, you have the advantage over sin. He transformed you from the inside out. He gave you a new heart. He gave you a new nature. He gave you a new disposition. I think it was Sharnock who used to say in that big tome on the attributes of God that that the life of regeneration was when a, a wolf would become a lamb is the words that he used. In other words, you're so radically different You say, well, Pastor, I am different. Well, you are different. Listen, you didn't want to have to be different. He made you different. When you bowed your knee and came to Christ, he transformed your heart. He worked a miracle on you. He did a work inside you that you can't even see so that what you used to hate, you now love, and what you used to long, what you used to love, you now hate. He transformed you, and as such... You don't have that desire to keep on sinning. You say, well, pastor, I meet people who do like to keep on sinning, like my brother or like my sister. Well, very well then, just be careful that you don't give out assurance. Be very careful that they're not banking that decision on a 30-year decision that they had made years ago. Be careful that they're not... A believer shows that the one who is righteous practices righteousness. And so here, number one, we have advantage over sin because number one, we're born of God. But secondly, this is so encouraging. We are kept by God's son. There it is on the screen. We are kept by God's son. Now look at this passage. It says there, but he, and I'm in the middle of 18, but he who was born of God protects him, comma, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, here's the second advantage the believer has in battling against sin and Satan is that Satan cannot, well, I'll use the biblical word, touch you, which I'll explain that. He cannot touch you. He cannot, this is what John is saying, drag you into ongoing sin so that it overwhelms you 
Why? Well, here in verse 18, look. It says, because he who was born of God protects him. Now, we have a question to work through there. Who is the, if you look down in your Bible, if, who is the he who was born of God? Is it referring to the believer? I mean, he just did state earlier that everyone who's been born of God, and he's talking to a believer. When he gets there to verse 18, does it say then, but he, that man or that woman who was born of God, protects him, okay? Or is John referring to the person of Jesus Christ? Look at it again, and I think it's Christ. Look at verse 18, where it says that he, and I would capitalize the he, who was born of God, watch this, protects him. In other words, it's Christ. And I think that's consistent with the context. Now, there are some places where the believer is to keep himself. And I'm thinking of of different scriptures where the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 5.22 to keep ourselves pure. It tells us right here in this book in 3.22 to keep the commandments of God. It tells us in 2 Timothy 4, 7, there Paul said to keep the faith. You remember when James said in 127, keep ourselves unstained from the world. And then it actually says, if you just glance down to verse 21 of chapter 5 here, keep yourselves from what? Idols. I mean, the believer has an experience uh, to keep and to guard and so forth. But here... I believe it's a reference to Christ. You are not protected in your own strength. You are protected by the power of Christ. So that as you capitalize he, he, Christ, who was born of God, the only begotten one born of God, protects him. Does that make sense? And the evil one does not touch him. In fact, one translation, the New English Bible translation, actually just translates verse 18. It is the Son of God who keeps him safe. You say, now, Scott, okay, what's the point here? Well, follow the argument. Here's what John's saying. We are delivered from ongoing sin, practice of sin, not only because we're born of God, but also because of the power of of the Son on our behalf. You might ask, but why? Why does he need to, look at that word in verse 18, protect us? I mean, why does he need to keep us or protect us? And you can see it. It's in the next phrase. Look at it. And the evil one does not, what? Touch him. Now, that word touch there, it's not like like this. I meant to, I, I'm touching that. That's, that's not what the, the word means. It literally means, speaking of the evil one, Satan, okay, that he can never fasten himself onto you. That, that's the thought here. That the evil one, Satan, cannot cling to you, okay? Literally, in the language, the evil one cannot lay hold of you. And the picture here is the picture of Satan seeking to fasten his grip 
on the believer, and it's put in the present tense, and it, per, it kind of depicts his persistent efforts. But, but I like how Calvin said of this phrase. He said, Satan not touching the believer refers to, he said, a deadly wound. And I like that. In other words, the evil one cannot touch you. He cannot hold you. He cannot cling to you. He cannot, it doesn't matter what some charismatic teachers say, he cannot fasten himself onto you. He cannot get inside of you. He cannot possess you. He could never, the thought here, is deal you a deadly wound. In other words, your spiritual life is never extinguished. And your assurance is given to you. Why? Because you are kept by God and kept by Christ. Amen? I mean, if it was up to you and up to me by myself, we'd be in big trouble. But John's saying, no, you've got the new birth. And not only do you got the new birth, you have an advantage over Satan. Why? Because that very one who has been begotten by God in time, second person of the Trinity, is the one who is protecting you. You say, well, how do God and Christ protect us? Why does the evil one not touch us? On what basis are we secure? Okay, let me just rifle forward a number of things. Number one, because of the promises of God. You say, well, Scott, it's, it's speaking of Christ here in 18. I, I know that. But if you look at that phrase again, but he who was born of God, literally the, the text says the one fathered by God. In other words, God the Father gave the Son. He sent the Son. And God is the source here as well. So I'm going to get to the way that we're secure in Christ because you might be asking the question, is that fair? That's why I can't get very far. How are you protected? I mean, don't you want, I want to know that. How are you kept? Because maybe some of you, as you look in the future and you think about the end of the world and you think about Antichrist that we've talked about a little bit, you're wondering, do I have the faith to make it? Can I really sustain this thing? I mean, if I was really put on the, the line for the truth and I had to make my decision, can I, can I remain faithful? Well, here... You don't have to worry about it, at least in this passage, because Jesus Christ has promised to keep you. Jesus Christ is protecting you. But let me just expand that a little bit. Number one, you are secure from the evil one. Why? Because of the promises of God. You say, well, what promises? I'm going to go all over here just for a moment. Ephesians chapter 1, okay? Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to be moving fast. If you write, you're welcome to. But in Ephesians 1.4, it says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the what? Of the world. He chose us. So listen, I want to just say, number one, the reason that the devil can't touch you is because you've been chosen by God. You've been elected by God. You have been sovereignly selected, if you will, in his heart and in his mind before the foundation of the what? The world. Before there was the states. Before there was the world. Okay? Before there was any created thing, he chose you. That's a promise of God. You say, well, what's the point? Well, listen, how could you ever lose your salvation? 
How could you ever succumb to the devil, to a mortal wound, when Almighty God picked you? When Almighty God selected you? When Almighty God said, he's mine before the world began? When Almighty God said, she's mine before the world began? Listen, our security that we're kept and protected is built off the promise of God. He can't lose you, right? How's he going to lose you? I mean, do you see how dangerous it is to even say that you can lose your salvation? I mean, I suppose if it was up to you to pick it and to choose it and to come forward, then you can unpick it, unchoose it, and goes backwards. But if in the mind and the heart and the plan and the sovereignty of God, he elected you from the foundation of the world, he can't lose you. You are protected based on the promise of God. I could say more, but look over just a few pages in Philippians. You know this one well. Philippians chapter 1 in verse 6. And you've seen this before. When Paul said to the church at Philippi that I am sure of this in 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You say, well, what is that? That is a promise of God that he who began a good work in you is going to see it all the way until the day of Jesus Christ. You say, well, what's that? It's a promise. Are you telling me that promise can be undone? I'm saying it can't be undone. You see, you are protected. Listen, the evil one cannot touch you. The evil one cannot give you a mortal wound. You say, well, why? Because God promised that the one who began a good work in you is going to bring it to completion. Now, some of us, you're going to enter into trials and the discipline of the Lord, and he'll move you that way whether you want to go that way or not, but he will complete it. Because what he started, he's going to finish, and it's a promise of God. Look over in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians. These are just all... Turn to the right a few pages in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 in verse 23. There, where, where I love this little section when Paul's praying at the end of chapter 5 there. He says, may the God of peace sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now watch this. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely, what? Do it. Are you going to say he's not going to do it? He's got to do it. He promised you to do it. He called you forward. He's going to keep his promises. Of course he's going to do that. Look to the right again in 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, there's all these statements here on the promise of God that you you can't be undone from Christ keeping you. But here in 2 Timothy 4, in verse 18, it's Paul speaking there. The Lord, at the end of his life, right? He's going to get his head severed on the Ignatian way, maybe weeks outside of him putting ink to this parchment. He said, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his what? Heavenly kingdom. I mean, is he not going to do it? No, he's going to do it. You are secure, based and built off the promises of God. Remember that one that we preached just, I don't know, a month back? Look over to Jude in the book of Jude. 
You know that one. In verse 24, this is another promise of God as the writer Jude gives this statement. He's the brother of James. He said, you know it well in 24. Now to him who is what? Who is able. In other words, that's that word for power. To the one who is able to keep you from what? Stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And then he says, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. But to the one who is able to keep you, you can't be lost. Satan can't touch you. Satan can't, if you will, give you a mortal wound. Why? You are kept by the promises of God. Look back just a few books to 1 Peter. Does he not say that there? In 1 Peter chapter... One, he uses explicit language there. This is why you think, well, how do people build that doctrine that you can lose your salvation? You can't. You can't only not lose it, but the evil one can't even get you, okay? Because God is keeping you by his promises. But there in First Peter in one four, it says to obtain or to an inheritance that is imperishable, okay? Undefiled and unfading, and it, what does it say? It's kept in heaven, what? For, you mean, can that be lost? That can't be lost. You say, well, what happens if at the end of the world I, I succumb? No, you're kept by the power and the promises of God. It's kept in heaven for you. Look at 1 Peter 1.5. Who, by God's power, I love that, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I love that. You are kept by God's power and are being guarded through faith for that salvation. You can't lose this. He can't touch you. You have an advantage over sin. You have an advantage over Satan. You've been born again. He's changed your heart. But secondly, here, you can see it. You're kept by the promises of God. Have you ever noticed this one? Maybe it's the ultimate one. Look over in the Gospel of John. Certainly, we've touched on it before, but maybe as we speak of the promises of God, and I'm talking about God the Father, because the truth is you're kept by all of them. You're kept by God the Father, and he's made promises. You say, well, what promises did he make to me on this? Well, he made this promise in John 10, 29, when Jesus said, my Father, who has given them to me, that's you, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my what? You can't be snatched out. I'm laughing. Come on. The one who said, let there be light, and there was light, and the one who said, let there be teams of water, and the ones who created the star and the moons, and he created life, and then he created all of life, the one who spins the earth on its existence, and we're spinning so fast, that one, somebody's going to take you? Out of his hand, I don't think so. So listen, you are kept secure. In fact, the promises of God make it utterly impossible for sin and Satan to have an advantage over us. Did not Paul say this in Romans 8? For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
And then remember, Paul said, whom he predestined, he also called. And whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, he also, what? Glorified. He's already, in that sense, in his mind and heart, glorified is in the past tense. He sees you that way. Listen, you can't be, ever lose that. Satan has no advantage over you. And I just want you to rest assured. Listen, you don't have to live in fear of him as though Satan has more power. Listen, the evil one cannot touch you. The evil one cannot fasten his grip on you. Now, some in your mind, you're thinking, what about Job? Well, we'll get to that in a moment. But you're kept secure, number one, by the promises of God. Number two, you're kept secure by the prayers of Christ, by the prayers of Christ. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, it says that he who is born of God uh, protects him. How does he do that? He's praying for you. He is? Yes. Look at John 17. Look there. You remember this, the high priestly prayer. It's a wonderful, wonderful chapter on prayer. But have you ever seen this on behalf of the believer? When Jesus said in John 17, 1, when he had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. He's praying, right? And he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. He said, since you have given authority over all flesh, to give, I love this phrase, eternal life to all whom you have, what? Given me. So what does that mean? Well, the Father gave to the Son a gift. And He gave to the Son a gift of redeemed humanity. And here He says, you gave eternal life to all to whom you have given me. And so the Father gave to the Son a group of redeemed humanity. Look at verse 6. Jesus praying to his Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they are, and you gave them to me. And here it says they have kept your, what? Word. Why? Because believers obey. Not perfectly, but with direction of life. And then you'll note that it says this in 17.9. Look there what it says. He says, Jesus says, I am praying for them. In other words, he's praying for you. And I am not, look what he says, praying for the world, and I'm in 17.9, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Look at verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Here's the prayer of Christ. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And look at verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. And I, watch this, have guarded them. I mean, you don't think that he's guarding them, but he's not guarding you, do you? (laughs) I mean, you don't think there's a difference between the disciples and you. In other words, he's speaking of the disciples, but he's even in his prayer here. Look at it again in verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, and you have given me, and I have guarded them, and that not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, Judas, obviously, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And so if you glance down, look at verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not in the world just as I am not in the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you, here's that phrase, keep them from the what? 
the evil one. Listen, when it says that he who is born of God protects them, Jesus Christ right now is praying for his people, for his church. You could never be sucked out with some mortal wound. Satan could never possess a believer, a true believer, because here of the prayers of Jesus Christ. Listen, he will keep you from falling back into sin's dominion. He will keep you from falling back under Satan's sway. Oh, listen, Satan may ask for permission to destroy you like he did with the apostle who? Peter. Jesus said, Simon, Simon, behold. Think about this. You know the text. Satan demanded to, what does it say? To have you. To sift you like what? Wheat. Remember the next phrase? But I have what? Prayed for you. Listen, he's praying for you. I, you know, maybe some of you are in the midst of an attack right now. And you're just forgetting. Listen, you don't have to be overwhelmed. You do not have to be overwhelmed either by your sin or either by Satan. He is praying for you. He says, I've prayed for you that your faith may not, what? Fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So listen, he who is born of God protects them. How does that work? Number one, it's built on the promises of God. Number two, it's built off the prayers of Christ. Let me finish here quickly. It's built off just a few. The promises of Christ. I said the promises of God, the prayers of Christ, but now the promises of Christ. Go back just for a second to John, to John chapter 10. And I'll just finish with this. You remember this. I read you 1029 when Jesus said, my father has given them to me is greater than all and no one will be able to snatch them out of my father's hand. But you remember what Jesus said of himself in 1027, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they what? They follow me. And Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they will never, what, perish, and no one will snatch them out of my, what, hand. So it's interesting. You're not only secured in the promise of Christ, but in the next verse, you're secured in the promise of God. I don't know if you've ever seen that one reference is to Christ, and the other reference is to the reference of his Father. And when it says that they will never perish, it is literally, they shall not by no means ever perish. In other words, this is an absolute, unequivocal, unassailable negative. And what Jesus has said this is that if, if in fact, his sheep should perish. No, you're held by his promise. Look back just in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. You're kept. You're kept. Be encouraged. John 6, 37. Remember when Jesus said, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and 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 he who comes... To me, I will never, what? I will never cast out. That's a promise of Christ. Verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me. (laughs) Can he lose you? No. How can you ever be lost? You can't be lost. He saved you in eternity gave a gift to the Son. The Son is an intercessory prayer for you, and you're bound by the promise here of Christ 
that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me. You can't be lost. He has no claim as the evil one on Satan, and therefore he has no claim on you. And this doesn't mean that you're going to be free from danger, but it does mean that you are divinely protected in the midst of the danger. So listen, be assured you have an advantage, amen? Don't ever let somebody think that Satan is stronger than Christ. He who is born of God protects him or keeps him, and you are secure in that. 